What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. We have a really strange um, relationship with food in this country. Food changes mind. Because the mind is the electricity sparking through that flesh. It wasn't until I started to ask people about their sleep that it just like it changed everything. Our sleep quality is more important than our diet and exercise combined. Well, well let's be clear. Nobody knows what the perfect diet is, sure. even when it comes to fasting. It's all largely based on rodent studies. So what I can tell you about the rodent studies, which I'm very familiar with, is that if you take a rodent and reduce its calories by 25% for its whole life, it will live longer, 30%, but it'll be really miserable and aggressive. <laughs> uh, and that's true for us as well. I've tried calorie restriction for about a week and I gave up, I was pretty angry. But what we discovered, our, my colleagues um, discovered, is that if you, it's not just what you eat, it's when you eat that's mm -hmm. important. And what's been found is that if, as long as you have that period of hunger um, in a mouse, so you can feed them every other day, then they can gorge themselves as much as they want. And they do, they eat about 90% of what a mouse having free access to food would eat. Um, but they, they have the same longevity benefit as a mouse that's always been hungry. And if that's true, what that means is for us is that we can enjoy life as long as we have that period of hunger once a day or maybe twice a week. And I believe the only reason we age, um, you know, we could live for a thousand years otherwise, the only reason we age is that our repair systems become complacent. You mentioned that what, what is beneficial for you when you're young come back to bite you when you're old. What we think is that these repair systems are very good when we're young. So the idea is it's called antagonistic pleiotropy, and I think it's right, and that is that we evolve to stay healthy and alive and fit till we're 40, and then the, the forces of natural selection decline after that because we've essentially bred Right. We've often had children, but we don't need to stick around beyond that. And building a, a body that will last a thousand years is pointless at that, you know. So most species only live as long as they need to to reproduce, and then a little bit more. 
If you're a mouse that could die within two years, they only build a body that lasts two years. If you're a whale that has no predators, you can live for a couple of hundred years. That makes more sense. Why, why does the whale live for a couple hundred years? Like I would say it's pretty safe to say certainly um, at some point in our past, we became a pretty clear apex predator. It's not that things couldn't take us out, but I mean, yeah. by and large, obviously look at, at how far we've come. They didn't. So why would we only live to 40? Is it that whales continue to breed and be yeah. um, useful in that sense? So that's really super interesting. Very few people talk about this. The reason is that we were not at the apex of the food chain until recently. But in a world where we typically would die from starvation or from war, mm. a lot of men didn't make it to 40 because of that. We were at the you know, middle of the food chain. Only now we, we actually we barely have a chance of dying before 70 or 80 mm. unless we're unlucky. You know, give us another 5 million years of evolution, we could evolve 200 year lifespans. That's what should happen if evolution continues. A whale has been at the apex for about 30 million years, mm. and they've been allowed to evolve those long lifespans. We are just like them. We share most of their genes. They're warm-blooded. They produce milk. They're conscious. They're basically us in the sea. So anyone who says we've reached our maximum limit doesn't know what they're talking about. Mm. Talk to me about this notion of resetting the biological clock. How do we do that? What's the mechanism? And so obviously um, going hungry occasionally, exercise is gonna help, but I know that you have a regimen that I'll lovingly call a regimen of drugs or precursors to things um, that we can take. What can we do to reset that biological clock? Mm -hmm. Well, there are different levels to resetting aging. Uh, there are three levels that we know of. The first is pretty easy to reset uh, or to, to manipulate. These are the proteins that turn um, genes on and off very quickly. We call them transcription factors. Mm -hmm. And they, they basically read a gene and make a protein. That's what they do. Uh, that's level one. That's easy. Go a little bit hungry, that'll change. Level two is a little bit harder. The level two is not just changing which genes are quickly turned on and off, but actually silencing genes for, mm. for a long time. And this is where my enzymes that we work on, the sirtuins, come into play. Let's go back to the Pac-Man. They clip off acetals off these packing proteins. You spool up the hose and it becomes, becomes locked in. That, that gene gets silenced for a long time. So to do that, you can exercise, you can diet, but you also, I think you need a little bit of help as well. What gets really interesting, and this is something most scientists don't even know about yet, is level three, the deep layer of aging. There's actually a DNA clock that tells our bodies how old we are. We, I could take your blood and read it, and I could tell you roughly when you're gonna die. What? Yeah, we can do that. What Just, are you looking for? We're looking for chemical groups that get added and subtracted to our DNA, the, the long string uh -huh. in the cell. You get chemical modifications in predictable ways as you get older, starting from conception. So even in the womb, even as a kid, even as a teenager, you're aging based on this clock that goes up linearly. And where you fit on that line, it's very accurate that tells you your biological age. But how do you know when the person's going to die? Is that just based you on just actuarial straight tables? Is it actuarial tables though? The human average uh, human lifespan is 86. And is that what you mean? Or is there, could you see something specific in my line that would say, ooh, you're headed for 68, sorry. Uh, no, it's not, not specific, but what it's based on is machine learning based on thousands of people's um, code of methylation yep. on the genome and comparing that to their health and their date of death. Oh, fuck, that's so interesting. So if you were to take my blood right now, what would you look for exactly? We would read the methylation. The chem these are chemicals, hydrogen yep. and oxygen, bound to the DNA, chemically, physically bound. Um, and those accumulate as you get older in very predictable ways. In fact, they're so predictable that we can use the same clock to measure the do a dog's age and a human's age. Whoa. All based on methylation. Right. Okay, what causes methylation? Well, there are two classes of enzymes, the ones that add the methyl chemicals and mm -hmm. those that subtract it. Okay. How do I take a boatload of ones that subtract it? Ah, that's what we're working on. Now, here's the key. Level two aging reset, which we can do by some of the things that I'm doing in my life, yep. probably you are too, those aren't permanent changes. You can't just do that and expect that take, take one treatment and you go on living for another 10 years. Okay. Because level two isn't as permanent. It's somewhat permanent than level one, but level three 
is truly permanent. It, you could reset yourself 10 years and then go back and then wait another 10 years and potentially reset mm. the clock again if you know how to do that. You know, a lot of us have this ball and chain when it comes to food, right? We're just, you know, we eat at breakfast, we eat lunch, and we, worry, we take up so much of our mental bandwidth that can be used for productivity, for relationships, for self-development. But when I do interviews, when I interview other people, or when I'm being interviewed, I like to do it in a fasted state. Now, it, I didn't start doing that. It took me a while to get to the point where my ketone levels get to a, a point where I'm not feeling hypoglycemic and the symptoms of like low blood sugar affect me. But I don't really worry about, is because once you're fasted, I, for me personally, I don't start to get negative symptoms in terms of sleep issues and maybe constipation or whatever until day three. Mm -hmm. So I'm cool going to 36 hours and not knowing, am I gonna have food or not? So it's just a way to clear the cobwebs, not have to worry about meal prep on Sunday. But the reason why I do it is I actually have a, a tumor biomarker that's elevated called alpha fetoprotein. Interesting. That's yeah. why you started doing it? Well, that's why I'm fasting pro more on a more prolonged basis. Every 20... Tell people why. Why do you think that it... And then tell us the exact protocol. Yeah. But, um, give people a little bit of the background on the potential anti-cancer properties, okay. what you've read. I'm super interested in this, so you can go as crazy as you want. Well, you know, there's a lot of research. People talk about fasting, first of all, lowering glucose and insulin. And so obviously there's many different cancer subtypes and cancer cells metastasize and, and they, they mutate and, and so forth. But uh, a lot of research shows that cancer cells can utilize glucose and insulin to thrive. So getting rid of those growth factors. And fact insulin, I've not heard that. So the cancer cell can actually use insulin as what a growth factor? Or? It's a growth factor and to kind of pivot uh, their metabolism to a more gl uh, glycolytic, so they're burning mm -hmm. sugar instead of fats. And then we'll get into autophagy in a minute, but insulin's involved in kind of um, amplifying mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin. I know you had Peter Atia on and you talked at length about this, but this is really the gas pedal for cellular growth. And so it's, and I like to just pause right here and let people know it's, it, I describe mTOR like a light switch in your home, right? It's not good or bad it's the context that matters. Your light mm. switch is great when you wanna find something in the dark, but it, it can be bad if you're sleeping and someone turns it on. So that's where, you know, every time we eat, even if it's a vegan meal or an animal-based meal, we're going to stimulate mTOR. So just wanted to throw that out there. It's not good or bad, it just is, and it's context. But getting back to your question about insulin, that could be the purported mechanism through which insulin may affect cancer growth is, uh, through mTOR activation, which just kind of fuels pro-growth pathways. Yeah, so, so getting back to it, glucose inhibition or lowering glucose down, um, in, lowering insulin, enhancing mitochondrial function. So a lot of people, I'm sure you've talked about this, you know, if we en envision our home being a cell, our home has different appliances, right? We have the refrigerator, the, the stovetop, the furnace. Uh, inside each one of our cells, we have different appliances. They're called organelles. So they're little cells within cells really and our mitochondria play a key role in helping us burn fat for fuel helping us think clearly helping us move our muscles and uh, it seems that mitochondrial dysfunction is uh, you know an upstream event leading to various diseases from mild cognitive impairment to blood sugar issues uh, and, and, and low energy fatigue things like that but certainly cancer as well so we got the mitochondrial function and then for me enhancing autophagy so as I said, um, I do lab work. I've been doing lab work, like you know, comprehensive metabolic panels twice a year. And I started to have this GI pain and I could not figure out where it was coming from. And it was just like persistent. So after three months, this was back in 2015, I started to do some research on the internet. And I'm like, you know, maybe I could have cancer. Maybe I could have something. And I started to look, and since it was in this region, I was looking for gastrointestinal biomarkers. So I measured those. And there was this one test called alpha fetoprotein which is high in people that have hepatitis or hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a, a, a metastasis of, of the liver. So I ran it and the normal range is zero to eight and mine was 80. Whoa. So anytime you have a weird biomarker, just retest because it yeah, could just yeah, yeah. be part of the, the lab. So I retested it and it was 79. And then I was freaking out like, dude, because I have a little girl at home. So I'm, I'm, I was nervous, right? You're nervous because that's indicative of having this liver cancer? Exactly. Okay. So because I had this biomarker, I started to kind of believe that I might have cancer. And then I started, like, on one hand, it was great because I was more present with my daughter, mm -hmm. enjoying the moment, putting down the phone at night, things like that. But on the other side, I was like, I can't have this mindset that I have something. I, 
And this is common in Western medicine. You have autoimmune disease, you have Hashimoto. So people start saying, I have MS, I have right. this. And I, I think we need to realize that certainly our body can have perturbations, but it doesn't mean you're always going to manifest symptoms of that if you, you can, the body and the mind and the diet and lifestyle are so powerful. Um, so well, let me ask you an interesting question. So I know you play in functional medicine a lot. One of the things that I love about functional medicine is that stop worrying about the symptom and get to the underlying cause. Do you think your elevation in that um, protein AFP, is yeah. AFP? Yeah. Okay, I, I keep forgetting the <laughs> alpha vita protein. Um, AFP, is that, uh, is that a symptom of something else? Yeah, I don't think so. But I was living a lifestyle where I was commuting, I was traveling a lot. I was a sales rep and I was going to Chicago, going to managing territories in Canada. So my circadian rhythm was totally jacked. Hmm. And so it was a, if anything, it was an eye opener that, and I mean, I've been eating healthy for a while. I mean, I got into bodybuilding and fitness stuff when I was 14, not for good reasons, for insecurities, <laughs> like many of your guests has talked about, you know, but um, I, I was doing a lot of things right. But that's one of the things that I was not doing my circadian rhythm was all over the place. It was, you know, always on Eastern Standard Time Zone and flying back and living in airplanes. So it was an aha moment that, I mean, maybe the universe, God was telling me, you need to change how you live your life and be present more, move more, and really honor your sleep-wake cycles because that influences our hormones, our biology, I mean, everything. What if you wanted to work on focus and cognition? These things are harder to test. But when you go into the big neuroscience journals, they speak about intermittent fasting. And the best way I can explain it is your brain's a hybrid vehicle. It grew, it evolved through, through thousands and thousands and thousands of years of lots of food scarcity. You didn't eat all the time. And so it's got a backup mechanism called ketones. So after 16 hours, if you don't put glucose in and the liver's done releasing the glucose it's held onto, through glycogen reserves, then it'll start burning fat. Mm. It'll clip off those oxygens and hydrogens and they'll make ketones out of it. Intermittent fasting can also help you lose weight. I think that's why most people are interested in it. But it's the way the brain prefers to get its fuel source. And it's based on a diet, um, lessons about dieting. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency. Because if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact this podcast is brought to you by squarespace if you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure please listen up within you is a unique blend of ideas dreams and passions that no one else possesses and it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. 
easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today. And get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com slash impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Earned through uh, controlling epilepsy and seizures in kids mm. in areas where there's no medicine. So I was in Ukraine, and when they don't have medicine or a type of seizure, seizures, abnormal electrical activity of the brain, just like an arrhythmia would be an abnormal electrical activity of the heart, uh, they would just feed them all fat diet. You could smell it in the hospitals. So something about an oh. all fat diet forcing you into just using ketones. Now, intermittent fasting is back and forth, glucose and then ketones, glucose and then ketones. But for kids, if you just get them almost nearly all ketone as the source that goes up to the brain through an all-fat diet, mm. their seizure rates go down. You know, so that's proof that food changes mind because the mind is the electricity sparking through that flesh. Mm. Food will change the electricity detectable, measurable electricity in your brain. Food affects mind, food affects brain. With that premise, we can talk about, okay, mind diet will hold off dementia and intermittent fasting might make you feel like you've had a cup of coffee once you get in a rhythm. It's not gonna make you smarter, but it'll bring you to your most focused, to bring you to your most attentive. It's not, oh, I'm intermittent fasting and now I can do physics. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not like that. It's your personal best and then the habits you demonstrate to your family by trying to be at your personal best and then your kids see that and your friends see that and i think that's how you impact generation change is to have uh capable people demonstrate hey it's not hard and this is the best we can do for ourselves it's really interesting i uh, i have a very different relationship with intermittent fasting so i intermittent fast a lot so i'm fasting almost 20 hours a day how does it feel awesome but it, does, it isn't additional clarity for me. So what I find is that it changes my relationship to hunger. So I'm not thinking about food in the way that I would be thinking about food if I'm eating over a longer period of time because I'm in ketosis. So if you took mm -hmm. my blood, not now probably because I just had a big meal about three hours ago, but if you had taken my blood this morning at like 10 o'clock, a thousand percent, I was probably posting a 1.5-ish. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in that range, I feel great, but I don't feel extra. Mm -hmm. But I find it is extraordinary for fat loss. So the reason I'm doing it now is so I cycle throughout the year. So in the winter, I worry a lot less about carrying a bit of fat. So I probably fluctuate during the year five to seven pounds probably. And then for the summer, then I'll sharpen back up. And then again, the, the cycle repeats. So that I find it really effective for. I find it really effective for changing my relationship to food, food. so that I don't need to eat. If I were gonna miss a meal, not a big deal. If my only choice is to eat something yep. bad versus to skip a meal, then I find that it's, it's just a different relationship. Right, so here's where I think I understand it a little bit differently. It's not like you expect clarity when you pop into ketosis because it's been 16 hours after you've eaten, or since your last meal. It's just the going back and forth over a few weeks, over a few months, those months you'll have maybe more clarity than the months before when you weren't doing it. I have it. a hypothesis about that. That's yeah. testable, uh, but obviously we're not gonna be able to figure it out here. But my gut instinct is, if you're used to a high carbohydrate diet, a thousand percent, you'd be like, holy fuck, this is a revolution. Uh, my life is so much better. I'm clear, all of that. 
but because I don't almost ever have non-vegetable carbohydrates in my diet, because if I were to cheat, then I get it. Then I am a little bit foggy. So the delta is less for you since Correct. you already started with a better diet. Yeah, so from a clarity perspective, this lay person, so discount the <laughs> shit out of it, but this lay person's vibe is, or hypothesis is, is that this is a lack of carbohydrate thing that gets people non-vegetable-based carbohydrate, that gets people the clarity, but there's even another benefit to it, which is it will radically alter your relationship to hunger is probably yeah. a better way to say it than food, yeah. which is pretty interesting. Yeah, so but that's the whole psychology of the the feed forward of you know forward loop cycle of eating and then the I don't know that. What does that mean? Well, it's just the the fact that you get a rush when you eat. Yes, you know it's just, it's you're supposed to. I mean, and fat tastes richer because somehow you know we figured out it was more advantageous you know to have this because it's more nutritious at least from calorie point of view. Mm. And so those things are set inside us. I mean, if it's good for us, it gives us a rush. Sometimes if it's bad for us, it gives us a rush. And I love the complexity of that. I love that animals get high. I love that some people think that... Stop there. It's I totally am with you, but explain to people how animals get high. Well, they eat fermented food. They bury stuff underneath. They they search certain things in the environment that are, uh, you know, psychoactive, meaning it changes the way they feel. Mm. And what's unique about these substances, like cannabinoids or even nicotine, that when you, as a scientist, I'm reading papers, and it says cannabinoid receptors. We have named scientific terms for cannabis inside our body. Mm. There is a nicotine receptor, nicotinic receptors. So that active ingredient ingredient from tobacco, I'm not saying smoke, but just to understand that the chemicals in plants have perfect locks for which they serve the keys in our bodies. We, we grew with the plants. Mm. We changed with the plants. We used the plants to our advantage. And now the, the plants and the food have, have gone the other way and it's a disadvantage to, for us. And the biggest problem, I don't understand that. because we're eating too much. Mm. So before food scarcity was uh, an advantage because it kept us from, intermi- it was intermittent fasting by, you know, by necessity. Yeah. And that, if you think about it, just conceptually, it's just another hi- hypothesis. If during times of hunger you were less sharp or lack of food made you dull rather than sharpened your wits about where the lion was or where the other, where was the berry, where was the fruit, where were the shellfish in Southern South Africa, if it made you dull, that wouldn't be a positive thing. So I think I think it makes intuitive sense also that just a little bit, and with all respect, I know people can't get food throughout the world, I've traveled the world, I know there's bad food everywhere, but at an intellectual level, for people trying to take it to the next level, is, is a bit of food scarcity can actually sharpen your mind. Mm-hmm. And neuroscience is trying to understand at the molecular level what's going on, what's swimming mm-hmm. into the brain, and which receptors are being turned on. But I think. I think it does make some intuitive sense. You know, I don't think that there's one person out there that doesn't know a better food choice, right? You know an apple is a smarter choice than a Snickers bar. There is a giant gap between intention and action. Worked for countless weight loss companies for years and years and watched as people were prescribed, you know, a a food plan where they sort of just followed the food plan, but until something broke. Mm. And it just, it was the same for me. So I was like, I really want to understand what's happening in people's minds and why is it that they can stick to something for a certain amount of time, but then it ends. So as I kind of rotated in my career away from, you know, working in Weight Watchers and Lifetime Fitness and some of these larger brands into creating my own company and my own philosophy, my first step was to understand why do we do what we do? Because it isn't that we don't know what the smart choice is. So I went about sort of really looking into the brain science behind, you know, why would, say, a woman come in and I'd weigh her at Weight Watchers and she would, 
you know, the funny thing that happens before a woman weighs in is they start just spewing and, and almost like a confessional. They say, oh, I, I had a really good week until Friday when I had, you know, 37 points left and I ate 39 points and I felt so bad about it that I ate 275 points. And I was like, wait, you ate two points over, which wouldn't have made you gain weight, but the something's happening in the brain. So started to look into the research and it turns out that any time that we feel guilt or shame mm. about a food choice or an action, it actually activates the reward center in the brain. Meaning it makes us want to um, feed the reward center? Or? Absolutely. Okay. So the one thing that so you're like trying... It's like craving is what it's kicking, to it's, have the emotional reward. Yeah. So Got when it. we look at the brain under an MRI, when the feelings of guilt or shame, which so many diet programs, right, they, they um, create these boundaries at which once you cross that boundary, you are somehow bad. You have somehow broken a line. So this is sort of back to that woman, right? She... She felt like she had done something wrong. She felt guilty and shameful. So that drove her brain into the reward center, lighting up. And then she goes for whatever it was that she was trying to avoid. So a gambler is going to gamble more as they're losing, right? The, um, the shopaholic is going to spend more money and shop more as they feel more guilt and more shame over what it is that they're doing. So my entire philosophy and process was how do I figure out how to p move people away from these feelings of, you know, there's a, a specific program that if they don't stick to it perfectly, they therefore are bad. They therefore have, have broken something and it's over, right? Because that was the process that I found myself going through was I would lose weight. There was a finite ending to that. Maybe I reached a weight goal or I, or I did something wrong where it broke down. And so I, w I didn't just go back to like, sort of healthy eating. I went back to the most unhealthy eating there is in the world, right? Binge eating and overeating and all of those things. So, and I was seeing this with so many people. So I really felt like I really wanted to start to make people understand how their brain is driving them and remove some of those feelings of guilt and shame and give them the tools and the worksheets and the exercises that would help them to unravel their thought process around this and where they picked up those ideas. It's really interesting to me, and I think this is what I found so fascinating about Target 100. The way you open the book, like first with your story, which mm -hmm. is amazing, and I definitely want to talk about that. And then to your point, like once people understand that they've built this unhealthy relationship with food, then they can actually get to the cause and begin to unwind it. Yes. And I heard you say one time that, you know, I think oftentimes people are surprised because I have to come to them at the diet level because that's what they expect. That's exactly that's right. That's not where we're going to stay. No. And I thought that was so interesting. That's exactly right, right? Like, it's so funny. You know, I have to come at them with what resonates with what they can understand at this moment, but where I take them is so deep and so much further than what they've ever thought about their relationship with food. And I have sort of a tagline of like, I say, I'm going to return you to a normal relationship with food. We have a really strange um, relationship with food in this country. I think we've lost our way in many ways. Um, I think dieting and you know all of these sort of um, extremes that, that have, have come in and come out, um, you know, going into a process and sort of slavishly or following, you know, the rules that somebody else has set out that worked for them, right? I always say for my clients, I say like, let's pretend we're going to a hat store, right? If you were going to buy yourself a hat, you'd try on a whole bunch of hats. And if they didn't look good, you'd take them off and you would pick up the pieces that kind of looked good about that hat and you'd go to the next one. So I'm always encouraging people to not turn themselves over. Use these programs. They're amazing. You'll learn something from doing them, but don't beat yourself up if it isn't your long-term plan that you're going to stick to completely, which that's where I think this thing gets set up for people is they do one of these things, you know, they go to Weight Watchers, they stay on it for four weeks or so. And then when they can't sustain it, they feel like a failure and those feelings drive them to overeat. Um, so unraveling that is to try to look at this process from a whole new lens. And that's what Target 100 is a for me, right? So I had to lead them in with, I'm giving you a parameter. I'm giving you sort of a, 
a program to follow, but if you read the book, it's based on the um, image of me playing, uh, doing archery with my sons. And I say, I want you to go into Target 100 and imagine, you know, when you go out to, to do archery, you aim for the bullseye, right? And I had never done it before. So here I am aiming, I'm hitting the house off to the <laughs> left. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing well at all, but I did hit a couple of the outer circles. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is how I want people to approach their, their, their dieting or their moving through a lifestyle is that they wouldn't, if they, if they got near it, near the bullseye, they would still get points. So that's sort of the entire ideology behind Target 100 is, you know, I ask you to kind of limit yourself to about 100 grams of carbs a day. And I always say about, because if you got 93, it'd be fine. And if you did 107, you'd be fine. It's when you say like, oh gosh, I missed this perfect mark. So I may as well just go and eat and drink everything off on the face of the planet. So what drives unraveling this, which is the most important thing for people to hear is that we are just a bundle of habit patterns. 50% of what we do in a day is simply habit. And habits are relegated to a back portion of the brain where honestly, we aren't even present when we're doing them. And we do that for a really important reason, right? Because if I had to decide how to wash my hair every day, that would, that, would, that would be exhausting my decisions for later in the day. So, so we have to love our habits, but if 50% of what we do in a day is habit, then 50% of the decisions we're making about how we feed ourselves, you know, when we do, are we eating in the car? Are we eating on the go? Are we, you know, what are we, how are we fueling our bodies? Then 50% of that is just kind of not, we're not even present for it. And we're just being driven to these sort of old, easy patterns so we don't have to think. So aging to me is the either quick or slow breakdown of the gut wall. How do we know that? Well, we can take a look at 105-year-old people around the world. You can look at their microbiome, the collection of bugs in their gut. They will have a very diverse set of bugs. They'll have, you know, it, it takes a village, this really incredible tropical rainforest. And those microbiome, that collection, will be identical to a healthy 30-year-old. Mm. So what that says is that these healthy 105-year-olds are healthy because they have the microbiome of a 30-year-old. And it's this microbiome that is not attacking the wall of their gut, that's actually existing with the wall of the gut. And we, I talk a lot about this crazy bug that may be the key to longevity, and it's got a great name, Ackermansia mucinophilia. Say yeah. that three times. Say that once. Yeah. So this bug lives in a mucus layer that uh, lines our gut. And if we're lucky, and the way we're designed, we're supposed to have a layer of mucus lining our gut before we get to the cells. And that mucus is there to, number one, trap my favorite subject, lectins, which are plant proteins that are looking for sugar molecules. And number two, it's to protect the wall of the gut from bacteria that might do us harm. So Ackermansia lives in the mucus layer and it actually eats the mucus. Now here's the best part. The more mucus it eats, the more our gut cells produce mucus. And it actually increases the mucus layer. Mm. And the book is actually lots of tricks on how to make this guy happy. Because the thicker our mucus, the younger we are. In fact, fun fact, Metformin, we now know, works by increasing the amount of Ackermansia in our gut, not by some magical, mystical thing happening in our body. In fact, interestingly, about 25% mm, of people, when they start metformin, get diarrhea. And uh, it's actually because the gut microbiome changes dramatically on, on metformin. And one of the reasons is that 
acromancia becomes predominant. Interesting. So yeah. at a cellular level, what's happening with metformin, something that simply triggers the body to produce mucus in general? Is it, is it changing the microbiome? You called it a rainforest earlier. Is it changing the makeup of that rainforest? Or is it just actually compelling the body to create more mucus? No, I think it's actually changing. It's selecting out for acromancia. Now, how does it do that? Because there's actually kind of a shag carpeting on the lining of our gut. Uh, so plants have roots going into the ground. Yep. We know the roots actually absorb nutrients because of the soil microbiome. All the bacteria, all the fungi actually deliver the nutrients into the roots of the plant. Well, we have a root system and that root system is this shag carpet that makes the, the lining of our gut a tennis court. Okay. So the reason it's so big in surface area is it loops around itself hmm. with little one cell thick protrusions called microvilli. Okay. Okay. These are our roots. They literally are our roots. At the bottom of these microvilli, or what are called crypts, at the bottom of the crypts, there is a pocket of bacteria that are essential. And they're down there in storage. In fact, fun fact, we now know the appendix is not useless. It's one of these storage systems mm -hmm. to repopulate our gut. If you lose your appendix, you're screwed for that part of your storage system. But down at the bottom of these crypts are these little collection of bacteria. And at the bottom of these crypts are our stem cells that actually repopulate these microvilli. So what happens is if we damage this lining, and boy, do we damage this lining, swallow an ibuprofen, it's like swallowing a hand grenade, take some food with Roundup in it, Roundup will destroy the lining of your gut. Uh, it's really good stuff. Roundup in itself will destroy your bacterial population. All right, really fast, because I, I think this is important. And for some reason, um, even though I've had you on the show before, I read you read the book, like the way that you've started talking about some of the places that you're going to find, also known as glyphosate, yeah. in the system that basically they're part of why they're doing it. It was originally created as a, um, or patented as a antibiotic. Correct which that was already shocking. And then you said they use it as a way to be able to dry the crops out so they can harvest them on a specific day. Yeah. Very good. But then you said they don't, no one wipes them off. And so it ends up in Cheerios and other things. And I was like, what? Like I thought if I was washing my vegetables, I was gonna be fine. So this was a little bit startling to me. Yeah, you know, uh, you know a little off subject, but they've looked at recently a study of 35 oat products in the United States and all of them had glyphosate in them. Some of them at very high levels, some of our breakfast cereals, most of our granolas, most of our granola bars. Most California wines, including a couple of organic wines, have glyphosate in them because the, the fields are sprayed, the weeds are sprayed with glyphosate mm. between the vines to kill the weeds. Research at MIT has shown that not only does glyphosate kill bacteria because bacteria use the same reproductive pathway that plants use, mm. it's the shikimate pathway. Humans don't use the shikimate pathway. And so Monsanto, when they invented it, said, hey, uh, this kills plants, but don't worry, it doesn't kill humans because we don't use the same mm. pathway for life. And everybody said, oh, that's great. Uh, you know, this is a miracle. Uh, what they didn't tell anybody is the bacteria use the same shikimate mm. pathway. And again, they patented this as an antibiotic. They didn't patent it as an herbicide. Well, salt has a couple problems. Salt's not bad. So sodium chloride is an unnecessary nutrient without which you die. You have to have enough sodium in your diet. It happens to be that you get all the sodium you need from, from the large volumes of these whole natural foods. Just like you get enough carbohydrate, you don't have to add sugar. And then you get enough essential fatty acids, including decosohexonic acid, et cetera, that you form from your DHA, or you form from your omega-3 by eating whole plant foods. But the problem with added salt is that it stimulates what's called passive overeating. 
So if you just give an animal its fill till it feels satiated, say rice, whatever, it'll eat a certain amount and then it feels satiated. You salt it, they'll eat significantly more. People say, well, yeah, it tastes better. You're eating more because you like it better. But you're eating more because the salt, the, the chemical salt, the sodium chloride in higher concentrations stimulates dopamine in the brain, results in increased intake. It affects satiety. And so the problem for people trying to lose weight if they're eating salted foods, usually too, the salted foods are things like flour products that are turned into breads or crackers or cookies that are also hyper-concentrated in calories, but the salt will allow them to eat more. Think about bread. If you take the salt out of bread it's, and, and you take out the, the sugar, it's called matzah. Well, you know, it's, you know, they have to eat it once a year and, on Passover, and that's it, because that's the only time you'll talk. Nobody's running out buying big boxes of matzah as a, a routine, because it's flour and water. It doesn't taste good, because any highly fractionated food needs salt, oil, and sugar or combinations in order to increase flavor. That's what chefs are, is people that take hyper-concentrated foods and add salt, oil, and sugar to it and deliver it to the palate so it stimulates the brain in the most intense way possible. All We're right, saying so get away from all that. Let's. Um, your addict analogy, I think, is very apt, and I want people to burn that into their soul, that there are some people that can get away with having some of this stuff, and it doesn't become a huge problem, though. They would almost certainly be better off from a longevity perspective, from a feel-good perspective, if they went to a totally plant-based SOS diet. Um, but so for someone like me, I don't struggle with my weight. I don't have an addictive personality. I can fast if I want, just because I think it's better for me. Um, but I... When I think about going to a full plant-based diet, sort of uh, forgetting about a pure SOS diet for a second, but one of the things that I already eat that I know that I would eat is an avocado, like literally the avocado, mash it, um, nothing else added to it. I take a raw baby carrot and then I put salt on the avocado. It is fucking delicious. Is it still bad for me though if I am... I'm not overweight. I don't have a problem overeating it. Um, it. At that point, does salt still have such a problem that I should be cutting it out of my diet or am I only cutting it out to stop me from passive overeating? Well, I think it's not just passive overeating because salt also is a very powerful preservative, which is why it's used you know, throughout history. To, before we had refrigeration and stuff, that helped food not go bad so that people to get sick from eating spoiled meats and other foods. And so it is an effective preservative. But when you think about the five pounds of bacteria that live in your gut, it may not be too good an idea to put too much of a preservative into that gut because it will alter the microflora. Part of the reason people on meat-based diets have completely different microflora than plant-based diets may in part be because of the higher salt intake that's oftentimes associated with it. Now, let's be clear. You know, vegan diets can be total crap. Soda pop, uh, potato chips, and other generic terms for highly processed fractionated foods can all be vegan. You know, Oreo cookies are vegan. That doesn't make them healthy. It just makes them not have animal food in it. So I'm not arguing uh, that that uh, vegan foods can't be crappy foods. They certainly can. I get in trouble speaking at national vegan conferences explaining to people that as, as challenging as meat products can be, the vegan processed food products may be worse and that they'd be better off eating the, the meat and that just gets them all upset because they're being driven from you know, moral, ethical, and spiritual viewpoints and mm -hmm. saving the planet and all that stuff. I'm not arguing that. I'm just arguing. I just want patients to live a long and healthy life and not be debilitated. And we know that too much animal protein is definitely a detriment. So people that are eating large amounts of animal protein have higher problems with kidney disease and cardiovascular disease. There's definitely, at some point, there's too much that needs to be reduced, even for people that are going to advocate animal foods as a whole natural food. Now, you might ask me, can people eat meat and still maintain optimum weight? Absolutely. Because meat isn't a highly fractionated pleasure trap food. It's a whole natural. The problem with meat is it's very concentrated. If you eat too much of it, you can have problems. But it's not the same thing, for example, as dairy products, which are a highly processed animal food that has all the challenges of animal foods, but now it has the problems of the salt. Like mm. try eating your cheese without salt and see what it tastes like. Salty it's the salt so that good. people really like about it. Absolutely. Mm. So that, that's why this gets very clouded and confusing is that because it's not just meat or it's not just uh, – plants, it's, it's really a question of how processed foods are and how do we get away from having so much processed foods. And frankly, meat itself without salt, you know, just boil some meat and chew on it a bit and see if that's how appealing it is to you. You know what I'm saying? This particular topic is, and me being a nutritionist, like I was all like 
food matters, food first, food is the most important thing. But in my practice and seeing people coming in that, you know, we've got these folks over here, you know, 80% of the time are able to reverse type two diabetes, heart disease, get off their lisinopril's and all this different stuff. And then we've got this category of people who just like literally sometimes would ironically kind of keep me up at night. Like, what is wrong? Like, I'm doing all these things right. Are they lying to me? And then it wasn't until I started to ask people about their sleep that it just like it changed everything. And this was about six years ago. And so then, and here's the key, I can't just tell people they need to sleep more. You know this, like people don't want to change that much. Like we want change, but we want it to be a little bit, right? <laughs> and so I found clinically proven strategies that are super easy to implement, almost things that can happen on automatic to help them improve their sleep quality, right? And once we did that, it's like the floodgates would open for people. You know, we've been struggling for sometimes, you know, 15, 20 years with their weight. Finally, the weight comes off, you know? And seeing people struggling with heart disease or high cholesterol, you know, the so-called bad cholesterol, um, and seeing those numbers finally get regulated once we got their sleep optimized. And I knew that this was incredibly important part of the conversation that was left out. And as we'll talk about, I know now that our sleep quality is more important than our diet and exercise combined. And what it does wow. for our health and also literally our physical appearance. Fascinating stuff, how much more fat you lose when you get optimal sleep, it's, it's insane. That's a bold statement. So walk me through what are some of the, um, the just core benefits that I'm gonna get, assuming that I'm sleeping suboptimally. Like mm -hmm. why is that a problem? Since that's probably one of the most celebrated like things, like right. when you get a little sleep, people like champion you. Normally I'd sleep five to six hours a night with no alarm. Okay, mm -hmm. I haven't set an alarm in 15 years. So that's just, that was my cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, I go to bed early, very consistently. My diet is on point. My exercise is on point. And so I'd wake up feeling awesome. Yeah. And so I thought, this is cash money. But because I don't set an alarm, that my sleep cycle will change. And mm -hmm. right now I'm getting like seven to nine hours yeah. out of nowhere and super consistently. Yeah. And I literally have no idea why. Mm -hmm. I'm warmer now. So mm -hmm. I used to be That's freezing cold at all times. <laughs> And then at the same time that my, and I don't know, correlated, causative, no idea, um, I've started being warmer while I sleep and then during the day. So what are like the core components of sleep? Was something bad happening to me or, or <laughs> less than optimal when I was yeah. only getting six hours even though I felt good? Yeah. Um, any correlation between the, the heat oh, and the listen, extra sleep? There's, there's, for, there's a lot to unpack there. Number one, uh, what's so interesting is that you you were doing something exceptionally right as far as what the research shows with improving your sleep, which is you were going to bed kind of consistently a little bit earlier than other folks might. And so what we call what we call this is this anabolic window or what we call money time sleep. And this is generally between the hours of 10 and 2 because it's more lined up with your natural melatonin secretion. So if you go to sleep during those times, you actually spend more time in the deepest, most anabolic stages of sleep and you tend to produce more human growth hormone than other folks. So you were already winning with that. This is why you have a tendency to feel better even if you're getting less sleep because I, this isn't called sleep more, right? It's sleep smarter. Mm. And there are many people who sleep, you know, eight to nine hours and they wake up feeling like straight up, you know, hot garbage, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? And they're just wondering why. It's because it's the quality of sleep. And when I say quality of sleep, what does that mean? Let's break that down. So your sleep is regulated by changes in your, in your brain waves. It's really fascinating stuff. And we still don't know really what sleep is. Mm. Trying to define sleep is like trying to define, um, you know, when Forrest Gump is like, life is like a box of chocolates. Sleep is like pretending to be dead. We don't really know, <laughs> right? But we do know the changes that happen in the brain. We cycle from kind of a normal waking state with, with gamma, beta. Um, we're probably in beta right now. We move to alpha, theta, deltas, where the deep anabolic dreamless sleep takes mm -hmm. place. And we need all of them. And there's a certain percentage we spend in each that helps to rejuvenate our mind and bodies. And if you optimize certain things, you'll do it more efficiently. One of those gear shifts, like if you think about your body, like this kind of manual transmission is melatonin. Like people hear about melatonin as a sleep hormone. It just helps your body to efficiently go through your sleep cycles. And if your melatonin is suppressed by various things, you know, I'll share a couple, 
then you're not going through those efficiently and you can wake up feeling like a pinata after the party the next day, even though you're spending all this time on a mattress. So that's number one. Number two, there's this interesting process called thermoregulation. There's a natural drop in your core body temperature at night to help facilitate sleep for all of us if things are running properly. But what was fascinating, and I shared a study about this, is that uh, they tested insomniacs and everyone in this particular clinical study all had too high body temperature at night. It would not go down. Mm. And so what they did was they fit them with these thermosuits, right, that lowers their skin temperature, not even their core temperature, just one degree, and virtually eliminated all their symptoms of insomnia. Whoa. Ambien can't do that, all right? And it's as simple as paying attention to how your body temperature influences your sleep. And so with your body temperature changing like that, it's kind of feeling more of an insulation. As a result of having more sleep, there's a ton of different things that be, could be correlated there. So I'm not gonna say that the sleep is a causative factor, but it's really interesting how your body does change in accordance to sleep. There's a natural rise in your core body temperature as the day goes, uh, as, I'm sorry, as the night goes on that helps to kind of wake you up. Mm. Um, so what I did wanna share though, when I said that kind of bold statement in the beginning, when we're talking about how sleep influences your body composition, I think everybody needs to know this. There was a, this study really blew my mind, and this was done at the University of Chicago. And they took people and they put them on a calorie-restricted diet, kind of typical stuff, again, I'm taught in college, to see the impact on weight loss when they're sleep-deprived or getting enough sleep, right? So they put the people on this particular diet, monitor everything. One phase of the study, they're getting eight and a half hours of sleep, right? And then they track all their metrics. Another phase of the study, same exact diet, same exercise, they don't change anything else, but now they sleep deprive them and they take away three hours of sleep. So now they're getting five and a half hours of sleep versus eight and a half hours of sleep. At the end of the study, they found that when individuals were well rested, they burned 55% more body fat just by getting more sleep. And so the question is, how does this happen? Melatonin, when I talked about this a little bit earlier, it's not just that it's involved in sleep, it's also involved in fat loss. And this study, this was done in the journal Pineal Research, found that uh, melatonin production helps to increase your body's mobilization of something called brown adipose tissue, mm. right? This is a type of fat that burns fat, all right? And the reason that it's brown is that it has more mitochondria. So it's very energy dense, right? These mitochondria, just for people who, I'm sure people have heard of this, but it's like these energy power plants in your cells that are creating the energy currency of your body, like how you experience energy, the energy exchange, something called ATP. And so when you are producing adequate melatonin, you're producing and mobilizing adequate amounts of brown adipose tissue, which just puts you in a metabolically advantaged state, mm. right? But if you're not getting the melatonin production, which you've got to meet two requirements, number one, you need a biological night. So that means this could actually be during the day, but it's a consistent cycle of when it gets produced. But the other requirement needs to be met that you need darkness. Mm. Your body produces melatonin exclusively in darkness. And so that's one. Also, how do, you, how do they get that body fat change? HGH production, which we talked about too. Human growth hormone is muscle sparing, and it's a big driver of energy. It's also known as a youth hormone. Kids have an insane amount of HGH being produced. This is why they have so much energy. We have a pretty sharp decline in our production right around 18 to 20. But my argument is that around 18 to 20, we generally, in our culture, like we leave the house, we might go to college, that kind of thing and we no longer have structure, we no longer have rules, and we're not going to produce as much HGH. Third thing, really quickly, um, is, and this is all has to do with the diet and the food choices, is leptin, all right? And I know people have talked about leptin before, but leptin is your body's kind of glorified satiety hormone. Mm. And so when you're producing adequate amounts of leptin, you feel more in control, right? You feel more satiated. But when, when leptin kind of falls off the map or you have leptin uh, resistance can take place, then we're gonna have some pretty big issues with you regulating your cravings and your appetite. And so Stanford University researchers found that just one night of sleep deprivation radically suppresses your leptin. And now I hope folks can start to pay attention whenever you might not get the best sleep, how your cravings change the next day. You're gonna have a tendency to wanna number one, eat more, number two, to wanna eat more kind of the starchy, crunchy, mm -hmm. salty, sugary type things. And I remember my wife, who's actually here, uh, when we had our son, and I, she, she's never seen me eat the, this food. 
I was sitting there like waiting for the baby to come. I was eating uh, chocolate covered raisins. I'm just like, and I didn't even realize I was doing it. You know, it was like three o'clock in the morning, you know? And so that's another thing. And uh, last one I'll share, and there's so many that create that change in your body composition, but this one is incredibly important, is cortisol. Cortisol has been drugged through the mud recently. Mm. You know, it's getting blamed for everything, but it's not really a bad guy. It's just misunderstood, all right? Cortisol is incredibly important. For example, cortisol is important for your thyroid to work, right? And that's kind of like the metabolism regulator of your body. But here's the thing. Just one night of sleep deprivation radically increases your cortisol and suppresses melatonin actually as well. But this rise in cortisol has a really powerful ability to start to break down your muscle tissue, Mm. which your muscles, your body's kind of fat burning machinery. And so it can convert your muscle tissue into glucose. It's a process called gluconeogenesis as a kind of fight or flight response because your physiology doesn't know why you're not sleeping. You know, it must be some danger about, you know. And so understanding those major hormones and there's many others, you start to see the picture that gets painted with just how much your sleep quality impacts your physical appearance.